Dana Lewis has type 1 diabetes. That means her pancreas, the small organ right behind your stomach, it doesn't work the way it should. It doesn't produce the insulin that she needs to break down food and survive. So Dana built a new one. Hi, I'm Dana Lewis, and I'm here as the creator, uh, one of the founders of the Open APS, Open Source Artificial Pancreas Movement. Dana's pancreas isn't a biological one. It's a computer system that she built to do the work her original pancreas can't. And she's helped hundreds of other people build their own systems like hers. This is technology you can't buy from a company, and you still might not be able to get it on the market for months or even years. Dana isn't a coder or an engineer, but she is an expert on her body and her condition. And she's not willing to settle for the technology out there when she could build something better herself. From GeekWire.com in Seattle, I'm Claire McGrain. Welcome to Health Tech, the podcast where we take you to the cutting edge of digital health. Stay with us. GeekWire's Health Tech podcast is brought to you by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group, leveraging best-in-class digital tools to relentlessly reimagine health and healthcare. Follow them on Twitter at ProvInnovation, that's twitter.com slash P-R-O-V innovation. Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group, making it easier, more collaborative, and more rewarding to take charge of your health. Before we get started with the episode, I'm excited to announce our first Health Tech live show, which will happen on Wednesday, July 26th at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. We'll be speaking with Aaron Martin, who's the Chief Digital and Information Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. Tune into GeekWire's Facebook page to watch our full conversation, and keep an eye on your feed for the episode featuring Aaron Martin of Providence in early August. Again, the live broadcast is on Wednesday, July 26th at 8 a.m. at facebook.com slash geekwire. Now, on with the show. For those of us who don't have type 1 diabetes, it can be hard to imagine just how much work it takes to manage the condition. Type 1 diabetes is like another full-time job that you can never quit. For people who don't have diabetes, I ask them if they have kids. And I say, remember that newborn state where the baby was waking up every two to three hours and you had to feed it and sometimes it would cry and you didn't know it was wrong and you kept trying everything and two hours later you did it again? Type 1 diabetes is a newborn baby that never grows up and never leaves your house. To explain type 1 diabetes, we need to start with your pancreas, that small organ just behind your stomach. One of the most important things a pancreas does is produce insulin. It's the chemical we need to turn nutrients from food into the energy our bodies use to do literally everything. Make our heart beat, make neurons in our brain fire, move our muscles. Insulin is made by special cells in your pancreas. But for people with type 1 diabetes, their immune system thinks these cells are dangerous, like a virus or a bacteria, and it kills them. Which means you need insulin every day for the rest of your life. Without it, you're going to die. When your body doesn't have enough insulin, you go into hyperglycemia, which is fatal if it isn't treated quickly. So you have type 1 diabetes. You need to inject insulin to stay alive. And the way you figure out how much insulin you need is by measuring your blood sugar, also called your glucose level. You need to make sure it doesn't get too high or too low. Either can be dangerous. And that's a challenge. It's not a precise science. So today, my insulin sensitivity level 
how one unit of insulin impacts my body might be one thing. But in two days, when I'm in Europe and jet lagged and haven't been exercising for two days, that might be different. So you're constantly dealing with everyday changes and how it affects your body. And some things you can measure. You can measure how many units of insulin you put in your body. You can sort of measure some of what you eat. But everything else like stress and hormones and jet lag and all that kind of stuff is constantly impacting your body. You're constantly doing these complex mathematical equations to try to juggle all the things that you can and cannot measure. Now, there are devices that can help with some of that work. One is called a continuous glucose monitor, which uses a small filament under your skin to measure your blood sugar, also called your glucose level. When it gets too high or low, the monitor sends an alarm to let you know you should do something. There's also the insulin pump, which injects insulin directly into your skin on a preset schedule. But those devices have their limits, and they don't talk to each other. And so the human, without an artificial pancreas, is constantly looking at the information from the glucose monitor, doing the math in your head about what needs to change, and telling the pump or reprogramming the pump and telling it what to do. So throughout the course of the day, a person with type 1 diabetes might make something like 300 decisions about things that impact their blood sugar. And that includes numerous looking at devices, doing math calculations, and pressing buttons on their pump, or if they're not at a pump, doing multiple injections throughout the day to try to keep their blood sugar level as normal as possible. It's a manageable system, if not perfect. But there is still one thing that really concerned Dana and a lot of other people with diabetes. I am a super champion sleeper, and I would sleep through the alarms on my glucose monitor, which means I had to rely on my mom texting or calling me in the morning to check and make sure if I was okay, which is, you know, I moved to Seattle for work by myself, and you don't want to be that person who talks to your mother every day, or maybe you do, um, but you don't want it to be the thing that worries her about whether you're going to be alive in the morning. Dana also wasn't satisfied with just the basic setup of her glucose monitor and insulin pump. The way she sees it, they weren't actually solving her problem. They weren't preventing her blood sugar from getting dangerously high or low. The problem with those devices are you have preset alarms at certain thresholds, and you basically get alarmed when it's too late. You're already low or you're already high. So you can't really prevent going low or going high unless you're staring at it and paying really, really close attention, which is hard to do when you're sleeping. And that was my problem is because I would exercise the day before, overnight, my sensitivity would change, my blood sugar would drop, and the the alarm would go off in this device, but it wasn't loud enough to wake me up. And so I would sleep through it. And luckily, every every morning I woke up. But people do die in their sleep from hypoglycemia. That's a real, real risk. And that was my biggest concern. And that's what started this all. In 2014, Dana started working on her glucose monitor, trying to make those alarms louder. She was using open source code and learning from friends and other people with type 1 diabetes. And around the same time, she was explaining to her boyfriend everything she does to manage her condition. The way I explained it to him, we realized was like explaining to a computer. And that's how we built the algorithm was that same math of if this, then that. You know, if the blood sugar is doing this and you have this food information and insulin peaks at these minutes and this time, then this is what needs to happen to adjust the outcome. And that's how we built that algorithm first for an open loop where I was still pressing the buttons. But it did the math for me and told me hey, you might want to take action now. And then when we close the loop, it was very, very easy to trust it because it's built off of that same math a person with diabetes does dozens, if not hundreds of times a day. More than two years after she started working just to make those louder alarms, Dana has built a fully automated artificial pancreas. It's basically a small computer system that does exactly what a normal pancreas would do. It reads her blood sugar and gives her insulin as needed to keep it in a safe range, with almost no input from her on a daily basis. 
So what we have is the insulin pump, which is a small pager-like device that's clipped to my pocket. And there's tubing that goes to my skin and it's taped on. And there's a small plastic cannula tubing that puts the insulin under my skin. On another part of my body, I have my continuous glucose monitor, which is a small little filament wire that's taped down under the skin. um, And that transmits to a receiver in my pocket that tells me my blood sugar. And then what the pancreas is, or the rig, is actually a small piece of a computer piece and a radio board. And it's about the size of a tic-tac case or two chapstick, depending on what size uh, tic-tac case you have. And it doesn't look like what you think it would. You see a red light, which shows that it's powered on. And there is a little white stick on the end of the circuit board. And that is a radio stick. And that's what's going to communicate with my insulin pump wirelessly. And then you mostly just see the battery. That's what the wires are connected to is just a small LiPo battery. On the back side is an Intel Edison chip. And that is the small computer we use that hosts the algorithm. So in order to build the artificial pancreas, you get the radio board, the Edison, and the battery. You put those all together and you actually will log into the Edison and program it with your code. And you load the open source software and you load the algorithm on there and tell it, hey, here's my insulin pump. Here's my continuous glucose monitor. And then that's how it closes the loop. And I have it often clipped to my pocket. So I basically just don't leave it wherever I go. But it's got a pretty good range. It's 10 to 20 feet. So you could have one of these and cover your entire apartment. You might have one downstairs in your house, upstairs in your house if you've got a two-story house. Um, But you can have as many of these as you want. We've designed it to work well with what I say I gave it Southern and Manners. So they're very nice. They don't talk on top of each other, stomp on each other. Uh, So you can build for redundancy and safety. But if all you can afford is one or all you have is one, um, then you get pretty good range off of the radio stick to talk to your insulin pump. Dana's right when she says her artificial pancreas system, what she calls an APS, doesn't look like you'd expect it to. We have a ton of pictures of Dana and her APS. You can see those at geekwire.com slash health tech. But for now, I'll say it looks like a circuit board in a small, colorful coin purse. Hers is orange and purple, and it has a DIY diabetes pin on it with a unicorn. You'll see the pictures and go, oh, that does not look like what I thought an artificial organ would do. And granted, the name artificial pancreas, it does not replicate all functions of the pancreas. What it's doing is automating the math and automatically adjusting insulin. But when you talk to people, they kind of understand when you say artificial pancreas. Whereas if you say to an average person, hybrid closed loop technology, they're like, wait, hybrid? What? And they don't understand. So artificial pancreas is not a complete name, but that's what we use. Not counting her insulin pump and her monitor, the APS that Dana put together costs less than $150. And you can buy all the pieces for it online. And many people have. Dana's the founder of a huge movement among diabetes patients to build their own DIY devices. All her code is open source, and she works with other people with diabetes to keep improving the system. She estimates that about 400 people have built APSs like hers. But for her, the most important part of this journey is just going to sleep every night. I went from being afraid to go to sleep at night and having to text my mom every morning to, as, my, as my safety balance to, I don't have to do that anymore. She still likes it, but I don't have to do that anymore. And just the peace of mind and the sense of security of not being afraid to go to sleep, until you have that fear... It's really hard to articulate what a burden that is lifted off of you. But for anybody listening who loves somebody with type 1 diabetes or has it, you probably understand that feeling of anxiety that's just always there. And knowing you have this system to watch your back at night and know it's not perfect, it's not a cure, but it helps so much and it cuts down immensely on the number of lows and highs that I experience. And that security is just priceless. Dana's new organ can also put her in a funny spot sometimes. She says one of the top concerns of people building their first APS isn't necessarily the code or staying in the radio signal. It's going through airport security. 
So I actually tweet every time I go through airport security because when people go on Open APS and the first time they fly, they're, they're always like, oh, no, what, what is security going to say? And you put the pancreas in your bag and it goes through the x-ray and 99% of the time nothing happens. It's a small computer and a small battery and it's smaller than your phone. So it stays in your bag. You know, it's not when, when we're talking about this. Remember, it's like the size of a Tic Tac case. So just think of it as your electronic Tic Tac case that goes in your bag and goes through x-ray and it's just fine. Um, occasionally, if you get tapped for a random electronics check and they start asking you, oh, can you pull out all the electronics in your bag? Well, it's a little bit of a circus because you're pulling out batteries and cords and pancreas and pancreas and more pancreas sometimes if you have multiple. <laughs> but they just look at it and they, you know, they do they do the wipe thing and they look at it and they're like, oh yeah, it's and sometimes they'll run it through again and they all look at it and say, yeah, it's a small computer, big whoop. So I have flown hundreds of times with multiple pancreases and never had a problem, but I know it's something that people worry about. So if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see these pictures and be like, A, she travels a lot and B, why does she keep doing that? And it's because literally every week when I don't do that, I'll have somebody ask. And it's nice to have that constant reassurance of this is the new normal where people carry their artificial organs and send them through the x-ray. Dana has built something remarkable. It's changed the lives of hundreds of people. But the artificial pancreas system is far from being complete. Part of the point is that people are personalizing and improving their systems every day. We'll tell you how after this quick break. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is brought to you by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group, helping to shift the industry from sick care to healthcare. Providence St. Joseph Health empowers people to take a greater role in managing and improving their health. Building on Providence's history as a disruptor, the Digital and Innovation Group leverages best-in-class digital tools to reimagine a better consumer experience in healthcare. Building healthier communities requires meaningful and personalized relationships that make Providence St. Joseph Health a trusted partner in people's lives. Follow the Digital and Innovation Group on Twitter at Prov Innovation. That's twitter.com slash P-R-O-V innovation. Now back to the show. Welcome back. We've heard about Dana's artificial pancreas as it is today. But chances are it'll look different tomorrow and in the weeks and months after that. Dana and other people with APS are constantly improving the system and customizing it to work best for them. It's the biggest strength of having a DIY open source system. For Dana, the process starts by talking an idea over with her now husband, who helped her build her very first pancreas. They'll map out all the things they need to address in the new feature and how to incorporate them into the code. We then code it and use a spare pump. That's kind of our our test pump that's not connected to my body. And we will watch it operate and look at the logs and the information and make tweaks and design from there. Once we get comfortable for that, we'll put it on a physical rig that will talk to the pump on my body during a period of time when I'm home and paying attention and watching the logs and everything. And so we'll watch and test that for a while. When it gets to a point where it's something that we want to share with other people, we then do a pull request back to the development repo of OpenAPS and say, okay, this thing needs to be tested. Multiple people will review the code, do that same process of off the body pump, on the body pump, um, and then we'll do any edits or they'll give it a thumbs up. The code is tested and refined several more times by bigger and bigger groups of users. Finally, it's released to the full community, and anyone with an APS can update their code to have the new features. So we do a lot of testing off the body, 
on the body by numerous people, um, people of all ages and all scenarios. Um, I consider myself a little bit of queen of the stress test because when I travel, I break everything. And so it's always really helpful to have one rig with the new stuff that I take with me on a plane and say, okay, what happens when you go on and off Wi-Fi and in and out of cell signal and you throw that at the system and, and really make sure that it's going to be able to handle most things. And so no system is perfect, but that's why we've designed for failure um, in terms of the hardware limits, the software limits, the logs and the information we expose to people because it is always going to be some risk. But we actually think of this whole system often as a net risk reduction in life with diabetes because, yes, you may increase your risk a little bit by having the system automate something. But the number of safeguards it has and its ability to step in faster than a human would be, especially if you're sleeping, the system will kick in so much sooner than a human would be woken up and alarmed to a situation. It tends to be even better for a human than if they didn't have the system. People with APS can also use different kinds of hardware that make using the system easier. Dana takes one particular device with her everywhere. A lot of us from the DIY diabetes community have been longtime fans of the Pebble because it is very, very easy to code and customize and get your information from whatever devices. And so there's people who are not using an artificial pancreas who are getting their child or their loved one's blood glucose to their watch. There's another open source project called Night Scout that was founded around also getting the data off the glucose monitor and displaying it remotely before the commercial devices did this. And whether it was a web page or on the watch, it makes it just so easy to glance and get all the information in one place. And so with OpenAPS, of course, you want to know, is the system working? What is it doing? Do I need to intervene if I'm, say, I'm going to leave the rig at home and go for a 12-mile run. You want to have the information about what the system has done before you decide to do something else. So it's nice to be able to glance down and say, okay, I'm rising from my now lunch this afternoon. Do I need to do anything? No, because I'm predicted to come right back down into range without having to do anything. But if I wanted to do something, it gives me all the information about what the system has been doing so I can still override or supplement what it's doing. There's some people who want the brains, the algorithm to run on their phone. And somebody actually created a app version that the brains are on the phone. And there's just a small radio rig that communicates between the phone and the device. Some people really, really like that. So that's one option. Um, the version I'm using has the brains on the physical hardware. And I like that because I'm in a plane all the time. I'm offline. I want to be able to have my phone be a separate device from my artificial pancreas. Right now, I foresee that we will likely always have a hardware rig, but what that hardware looks like and having it be small and battery efficient and things like that is what we continue to work on is how can we have the smallest, easiest setup rig for people who are not computer programmers and experts? How can they you know, find this stuff, put it together and m make sure that they can use it, but that's not a huge trade-off in terms of battery or ease of use? Now, there are commercial systems in the works that would basically do the same thing that Dana and other patients have built on their own. But Dana says the slow pace of the medical device industry really holds back innovation in those devices. And patients like her aren't content just waiting for technology that could change or even save their lives. The answer is always five years for a cure, five years for the next innovation. And we said five years is way too long. If we could do this today, tonight, why wouldn't we buy the small computer on Amazon and put this together? There's going to be something commercially coming out eventually, but we don't want to wait one more night to do that. And that's what we said. And that's also why we decided to open source our code and our algorithms and the documentation, because while we cannot distribute this, because then it would be regulated by the FDA, we can't not share this knowledge with people, because if they could have 
one more night of sleep where they're not afraid of dying in their sleep, where the parents don't have to wake up and check the kid, or the kid can just go to school and be a kid. How can we not do that? When we first started this, we really did think that when the first commercial system came out, maybe we didn't need to do this anymore. But what we've learned is that no commercially approved system is going to make everybody happy. The first generations are very conservative, and it's likely going to be the second or third generations of those commercial systems before it reaches the caliber of what we've been able to innovate on our own. Those commercial systems will be FDA approved. They'll have gone through a much more rigorous process, but they won't have the features that patients enjoy with the systems they've built themselves. Things like having an open portal to their data or being able to personalize their setup with the hardware they want. And the commercial systems will also be incredibly expensive compared to the $150, give or take, that you would need to put together an APS. There is one commercial system that was approved in October. Um, It is just starting to roll out this year, so they have their own access issues. The reported price for this thing is about $9,000. Now, keep in mind, it's not exactly apples to oranges because that's the pump, the CGM, the algorithm, everything all in one. It's an FDA-approved device, so, you know, all that kind of stuff. But even if you look at co-pays and the amount that insurance does or does not cover for this device, it's likely still going to be several thousand dollars out of pocket to a person. Whereas with a DIY system, you may have to buy a pump secondhand. That might be a couple hundred dollars. But when you add in $150 extra of the hardware rig, that's not that much in comparison. So it is something that we're cognizant of as we look at other hardware options of the version we have right now is possibly still fairly expensive to a lot of people. Not everybody can afford insulin, let alone an old pump, let alone the hardware to to build this. So the, the access to and the cost is a big issue and something that we're keeping top of mind as we look at other computer solutions for what could we do um, for this, because we know that there's going to be some people who don't want a DIY and they want a commercial option, but it's going to be hard to afford. Um, and that's something that we all as a, as a community need to, to think about as we talk about this technology is also making sure we think about access and affordability because it's such a big issue for everybody. Dana is also a big advocate of putting patients at the center of the medical industry, having the industry listen to and learn from patients. And the APS movement is a great example of this. She says she wishes medical device companies would look at what patients have been able to do with APS and learn lessons from their work. That would help all diabetes patients, not just the ones who have decided to build their own systems. We have the technology that's able to do this, but it doesn't mean that DIY is right for everyone. And we need to move faster because what the average pace of technology evolution has shown us is that we can move faster. And we need the medical device system to catch up with the speed of average technology. And what we've shown to these companies and to the FDA is that there is a burning demand for this technology. People are desperate to get this technology. And so we all need to do everything we can to move faster. But because there are some of us who are always going to be on the bleeding edge side of things, we're always going to keep pushing because we know, hey, I can and I'm, I don't want to wait. We are learning so much valuable information from those of us who are DIYing that is still helpful to the people who are going to wait and choose commercial devices. But the companies need to listen and be learning from this broader patient community and understanding how do people learn to trust or not trust these types of black boxes or these algorithms? What level of information can a person understand? And that gets into a big question in the medical world. Who should have access to medical data? If someone uses, say, a commercial artificial pancreas, should they be able to get their data from the company who made it? Many people in the medical community think sharing so much data is a bad idea, because patients aren't trained doctors, and they might not have the background to understand it. In short, they worry it might do more harm than good. But Dana and other patients are loudly saying that they want to have that information. 
for those of us in diabetes, we've seen kind of a trajectory of companies realizing more and more, oh, patients really can handle, quote, all this information. And it's not that we can. It's that's the amount of information we need to make decisions about what's going on in our body. And we need that information on our fingertips. So not in a pocket where we have to pull it out and press a button, but we need it on our watch. We need it on our phone. And so these companies should not be designing a one-size-fits-all black physical box, but they really need to be thinking about data interoperability and the flow so that if a patient has a great idea for a watch face or some other tool or some other display that, hey, they want to, you know, 3D display it on a wall, whatever it is that somebody wants to do in the future, we need to make the data free to flow so that people can experiment and use with that and continue to push the envelope forward. Because there's definitely some risk and DIYing, but there's also a lot of benefits, not just for the individuals who are doing the DIY, but also in how we push the companies to do more and how we push the regulators to pay attention to here's what the needs are and we need to get this stuff approved and out to people sooner. The other thing, too, is we talk about this in diabetes and people think, okay, well, that's diabetes because it's such a data-rich disease. People are used to self-dosing this lethal drug and they're used to the numbers. My theory is there are so many other patient conditions where this type of approach of not waiting, of adding regular technology and of looking at data in new and different ways could drastically help other people with whatever their quality of life issue is. For us, it started with sleep, but it's obviously now a 24-7 solution and something that works really well. And I'm hoping that there are other patient communities that learn from what happened with OpenAPS and how we took this approach and think, hey, maybe there's something we can do to make a small change. Because again, with OpenAPS, it wasn't about creating an artificial pancreas. It was originally about creating that louder alarm at night. And then it eventually, if you give a mouse a cookie, if you give a patient their data, you end up with an artificial pancreas. And if you think about other disease conditions, what else might be possible if we decide to take this available technology and say that we're not waiting? And that's what I'm excited to see, hopefully in the next couple of years, is more stories and other patient conditions where they've leveraged technology like this too. Okay, it's time for The Fix. This is the segment where we ask our guests about the biggest problem they see in health and what could be done to fix it. It could be a frustration from their professional work or one that they encountered in their personal lives. There's just one rule. It can't be something that they're already working on. Okay, Dana, other than all of those many issues we just talked about, what big problem do you think needs to be addressed in the medical industry? So the one big thing that I think needs to be fixed is drug affordability and access. And I think one thing that would help um, is actually having the FDA do regulatory reciprocity. So there are some drugs and devices that get approved in Europe and elsewhere, but then it takes a very long time for them to get approved in the United States, which means there's less competition, less access, and there are a lot of viable things that are available elsewhere to our international friends that are not available here unless you travel to Canada or fly to Europe um, and acquire them. And so I think that is one thing that would significantly improve access and affordability to some of our basic things if we had that reciprocity and got things approved faster or had a um, subdue process if it's already got regulatory approval in another country. Do you know why the FDA doesn't do that right now? That is a really complex question that I don't know the answer to. <laughs> I, I could hazard a guess, but I, I don't know exactly why they've not chosen to do that. And that would impact affordability as well as access? Yes. Okay. Because if you think about the price of insulin in Canada off the shelf versus the price of insulin in the United States off the shelf, even when they're made by the same company, same batch number, 
and you, you've got a friend in Canada looking on the shelf and saying, hey, I've got this insulin with this batch number. And you're in the U.S. saying, well, I just got this from my pharmacy with the same – it's coming from the same lot. And they are marked drastically different. And there's there's a number of things that go into that. But I think that is one thing that will significantly help with the cost of devices as well as drugs. Because the company would know – that the, the drug maker would know, hey, w- we can make this not only for the Canadian market but also for the U.S. market or Well, also Europe the transparency and- – and as well as the competition, because if we have more insulins or if we have more devices that do the same type of thing, um, you know, that competition is only going to help pricing. Yeah. What are the chances of that happening, of the reciprocity happening? It's an interesting world out there right now. You never know what's going to happen. So I don't know what, we, like, I wouldn't give it a percentage chance. But I think that um, because this is such a complex problem, and that is one viable solution. I'm, I'm hoping that that is certainly one option that they'll take that I think will have a, a, a nice trickle-down effect on the access and affordability issue. And to just kind of put a bow on it, it's basically allowing more competition between, um, between different drug makers and also lessening the amount of time and money drug makers have to put into entering the U.S. market. Is that right? Well, it also might prevent the drug makers from, or the device makers from always going to another market first to get approval. Not all the time, but probably two-thirds of the time we hear in diabetes that something gets approved in Europe first, and then maybe in six months to a year or longer gets its way made to the United States. Um, And that's really frustrating if you know that that is the latest and greatest thing and it's going to make a difference in your life. And it's really hard to get access to because it's not approved here. But if you go over the border or you you take a plane trip, that might be something that you can get. But then, you know, the longevity of your supply, you're not necessarily guaranteed that. So that's not a sustainable solution. And it would be great if, you know, everything could get submitted to the U.S. and the European regulatory bodies at the same time. And there wasn't this, well, we'll go there because it's easier and then get more data and and do it to the FDA. And what we've learned from conversations with the FDA, at least the device bodies, and talking about diabetes is they're not the evil big bad wolf that everybody makes them out to be. There are some great humans that work there that are trying to do the right thing for people. And they say, look, a lot of people make assumptions about what the requirements are, what the statutes are. Like we don't say X, Y, and Z. We talk about things that they need to consider, but it's really a one-off basis. And so if companies go in early and often to talk with them ahead of actually submitting their thing for approval, they may find that they don't need to jump through eight extra hoops. Maybe it's just one more hoop, but one hoop instead of eight hoops, that's seven less hoops and a lot less money and a lot less time wasted of bringing this thing to market. That's so interesting because like as an outside observer, that's not how I think that would work. Like it seems like you shouldn't be going and talking to the FDA before you submit something for a supposedly like objective review that that seems like not how you'd expect it. But it makes total sense because every like each device and each medication that they're looking at has such a unique kind of place and and people it's impacting and other scientific things going on around it. Yeah. And it's not like that they don't have a team, like an objective team that will look at it. But also, if they spot something very obvious, wouldn't it have been nice to know about it three years ahead versus that being the thing that slows down your actual official application and that impacts market forecast and financials and all that kind of stuff. So it's actually, you know, a huge benefit for companies to do that. And Maybe that's unique to the diabetes group and the device side of FDA. But my, I mean, at least for diabetes companies, like, please go do that. Because the FDA has said multiple times to patients, to companies, like, please do that. And it it's making a difference in terms of getting things approved much more quickly. But I've got to believe that that same would be true in other parts of the FDA. And it doesn't hurt to try to have that conversation and try to move forward collaboratively. Because, again, the FDA has the same goals that we have, which the company has, which is having better solutions to help treat these diseases. So we're all on the same page. We just have different jobs in different roles. And the more shared understanding we have about what 
actually we need to do to get these things to market, we'll all move faster. Dana Lewis is the founder of the open source artificial pancreas and lives with her husband in Seattle, Washington. Follow her work on Twitter at Dana M. Lewis and find out more about the open source artificial pancreas at openaps.org. You've been listening to Health Tech, a GeekWire podcast about the cutting edge of digital health. Sponsored by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group. Find more episodes at geekwire.com slash health tech and subscribe through iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm Claire McGrain. Thanks for listening.